KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Most COVID restrictions are now gone. Things are a lot different. I mean, the stay-at-home order is gone. Social distancing measures are gone. Masking for vaccinated people. I'm Jade Hindman with Claire Tregesser. Maureen Kavanaugh is off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. California reopens, but how will those who can't get vaccinated navigate? We have not done a great job thinking about people with disability, people who are not, you know, 100% able-bodied throughout this entire pandemic. We'll look to see what's in the city's new budget and hear how the performing arts will roll the curtains back. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Against the backdrop of widespread vaccination efforts and declining cases, California is reopening. Still, there are more than 600,000 COVID-19 deaths across the U.S., and the threat of variants remains. But in California, while COVID-19 guidance will stay in place for large-scale events, most restrictions are now lifted. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman joins us with details on California's reopening and continued efforts to fight the pandemic. Matt, welcome. Hey, Jade. So how is today different from yesterday? Generally, what are the rules for mask wearing right now? You know, in what situations can you go without a mask? Right. So uh, things are a lot different. I mean, the stay at home order is gone. Social distancing measures are gone. Masking for vaccinated people. And when we talk about what are the mask wearing rules right now, you know, for these face coverings, um, basically, if you're vaccinated, most of it goes away. Now, there are some exceptions there that are for masked people and unmasked people where um, they have to wear those face coverings. And we're talking about public transit, like going on an airplane, going on the trolley um, indoors. When you're at a school, you have to wear it. Um, hospitals, those are going to be areas where people are going to have to make sure that they have a mask with them. Now, if you're unvaccinated, that's where it gets a little bit tricky. And the state's kind of laid out some guidelines for businesses. You know, um, So if, uh, if I'm unvaccinated, the state wants me to continue wearing a mask in public places. So that's like going to a restaurant, going to a gym, you know, going to a family fun center. Um, and for businesses, there's a couple of different ways that they can sort of verify that. You know, First, they could do self-attestation. So that's, hey, have you been vaccinated? Yes, I have been. Okay, that's good enough. Um, the second way is businesses can implement 
some sort of vaccine verification system. So, you know, you talk to your friends and they say, I have a photo of my vaccination card on my phone. Um, that could be one of those situations where before you go into a bar, they say, hey, can we see a copy of your vaccination card? And the third way is businesses can simply say, hey, we're going to keep the masking requirement in place. Hmm. Are restaurants and bars uh, still limiting the numbers of guests and tables? Uh, you know, I mean, are they still social distancing? In short, they don't, they don't have to. They, they, they can if they want to. You know, if the, some business owners are taking the opportunity of the sort of dimmer switch that the governor talks about. And plus, you have all this outdoor seating as well, too. So it's sort of up to what the restaurants want to do. But, you know, legally wise, those restrictions go away. What about clerks in grocery stores? I mean, they can't tell if someone is vaccinated or not. So how are the stores approaching this situation? Yeah, each store is going to have to kind of, you know, make up their mind uh, sort of where they want to go. And I don't know if that's going to mean, you know, having, uh, you know, they used to have greeters outside of stores. Some stores have eliminated that. Uh, they might be bringing that back with that self-attestation asking, hey, have you been vaccinated? Or asking people, hey, can you show us a copy or proof that you've been vaccinated? There's been some confusion at Cal OSHA about mask mandates for workers. What happened and how was it resolved? Well, Jada, it has not been resolved just yet. Cal OSHA is meeting in a couple days. And basically what that means is there's going to be a couple week period where uh, workers in California at the workplace are still going to have to mask up. And we know that uh, the Cal OSHA board is meeting later this week to try to align uh, the, these workplace mask guidelines with the CDC, with the state health authority. Uh, but there's a little bit of a lag time there. And basically there's a 10 day waiting period. So we're talking not till the end of the month if it gets past, you know, June 27th, June 28th. Now, the governor, he does have executive authority, and he said he's not shy about signing any executive orders that could speed up that process to try to align the dates more closely. So where do people absolutely have to wear a mask? So sort of some, th some of the things I touched on earlier. So we're talking about indoor settings for schools. We're talking about public transit. Anytime you hop on a bus or a trolley, um, anytime you go into a hospital, these are going to be areas where masks are going to be required. And I imagine, especially in areas like hospitals and transit, that they're really going to be checking people. So uh, just a tip, if you're going out, you know, keep a mask in your, maybe in your wallet or, or in your purse. What about airports? Yeah, airports, they're going to have to, it's considered public transit. So they're going to have to wear a mask there. Hmm. Where are we with vaccinations in San Diego County? Are we near herd immunity yet? Yeah, the, the devious herd immunity word. You know, some people say it's 75 percent. Some people say 70. Some people say 80. Um, officials say, at least for first doses, that we have reached our herd immunity goal. So basically, um, you know, of 12 and over, 75 percent of that population has now gotten at least their first dose. And we know that there's a little bit of a lag time between the first dose and the second dose. So here in San Diego County, you know, officials are celebrating, saying we reached a very, very big milestone here. But we know, and the governor talked about this a little bit, too, that he's worried about, you know, other states and their lagging vaccination rates. And we did hear from state officials, um, you know, the state's top doctor that we're likely going to still see some outbreaks in uh, communities where vaccination rates are low. At this point, where can someone who wants a vaccination get one? I mean, are the super sites still operating? Right. So those big super stations that have been around, you know, for months that can vaccinate, you know, up to 5,000 people a day, those are starting to wind down, but there's still a lot of opportunities for people to get vaccinated. The county's doing a lot of mobile clinics where they're setting up at like the airport and things like that. So people can just hop off the flight, get one. All the pharmacies are still offering. So, you know, CVS, Rite Aid, Walgreens, you can still go in there, get your vaccination. Uh, but the big super stations that a lot of people are accustomed to, the one in Del Mar, the one at the old Sears in Chula Vista, the one at the Grossmont Center in La Mesa, those are are all going to be closing by the end of the month and officials just put out deadlines you know uh, the first one to be closing is going to be the Grossmont Center one that's going to be closing this Friday so if you have a second dose appointment there you're going to have to reschedule it 
There was some speculation that vaccinated people might eventually need a booster shot later. Uh, What's the latest thinking about booster shots? Right. So we know that drug makers say that they are developing booster shots, that they're ready to go if, if they need to use them, you know, testing their effectiveness against the variants. That's sort of a big question there is the variants and how long the immunity from getting a vaccine lasts. You know, every month officials are tracking that. Um, I did have a chance to ask the state's top doctor, Dr. Galley, uh, with Health and, Humans, uh, Health and Human Services, if we're going to need booster shots. And he sort of said it's a little bit too early. But he said if, the, if and when it's needed, the state is ready to roll them out on a mass scale. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Shade. Today marks the state's official reopening. Occupancy restrictions inside offices, stores, restaurants, bars, and stadiums are gone, and mask requirements greatly relaxed. Californians are celebrating their rediscovered freedoms. Except for one group, as I tell you about, people who can't get vaccines for medical reasons. Yeah, it was just poor timing. I, they, it was like, I think two weeks after I got my medication that the vaccine became available to This is Bernice. We're not using her real name for privacy reasons. Because of her job, she knew she would be near the front of the line for a COVID vaccine when they became available last winter. But Bernice has multiple sclerosis, and at the time, her symptoms were flaring up. I'm pretty comfortable being uncomfortable because I'm a runner. <laughs> like, like, how much uncomfort can I, like, deal with? I mean, I don't know. There are drug treatments that alleviate her symptoms, but they suppress her immune system, making the vaccines far less effective. So if Bernice were to do the treatments, she couldn't take the vaccine for six months. At, some, at one point, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, So she got her treatment. Two weeks later, she was eligible to get the vaccine. But instead, now she'll be waiting until August. I mean, it wasn't like immediately frustrating. I feel like it's more frustrating now that people are back to normal. Millions of people nationwide have chronic conditions requiring immunosuppressive treatments. AIDS, rheumatoid arthritis, and Crohn's disease are just a few examples. Also included are people who've received organ transplants and many cancer patients. UC San Diego epidemiologist Rebecca Fielding Miller says these people aren't getting enough consideration. We have not done a great job thinking about people with disability, people who are not, you know, 100% able-bodied throughout this entire pandemic. And so this is part of that pattern. She says loosening mask rules in stores and workplaces put unfair burdens on people. What it means to live in a community where everybody can feel safe, everybody can go into Target and, you know, buy a carton of ice cream and not and ha- not have that be a terrifying experience. But other than those very, very rare circumstances, um, people should be getting a COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Davy Smith, an infectious disease specialist at UC San Diego, says only people with known allergies to a vaccine ingredient should skip the shot. That means people on immunosuppressive treatments should probably still get COVID-19 vaccines, even if they won't be as protected as a healthy person. What I would say and what I do say to my patients is, yeah, I'm going to give you the vaccine, but 
you you have a condition or you're taking a medication that might this might not work as well for you as what everybody wants it to. So you need to go out into the world and be careful. Um, the most I would do is just, you know, do drive through mocha. Oh, that's it. <laughs> that's the attitude taken by Bianca Santos, who takes immunosuppressive drugs after her kidney transplant. She received both doses of the Moderna vaccine, but knows they may not be as effective on her. So she doesn't feel the freedom many others experience post-vaccine. It's very disheartening, though, because, you know, you see your friends all going out and stuff and then doing activities outdoors, eating at restaurants. As a young person, Santos says it's depressing to look at her friends' social media accounts. As we just heard, there are some San Diegans who have been told by their doctors to not take a COVID-19 vaccine, at least not yet, or they know the vaccines won't give them full protection. And that means they're relying on others, their coworkers, people at the grocery store, to give them protection. But are businesses offering that protection to customers and employees? Sandy McDonough specializes in employment law at Paul Plevin Sullivan in Connaughton and has been talking to business owners about their obligations. I started by asking her what employers are required to do in terms of masks starting today. Here's that interview. So to start, there's been some back and forth and confusion over what employers are required to do in terms of masks. So what can you tell us about exactly what the rules are now? There has been some confusion because Cal OSHA has submitted a couple different versions of proposed revised emergency temporary standards, or what I will refer to as ETS. Currently, those are before the standards board who will review them on the 17th. But as of right now, the standards that were in place as of the end of last year are still in place for employers. And you've been talking to business owners about these rules. Do they want to continue requiring masks? Well, employers are doing a good job of balancing safety in the workplace, which is an ongoing requirement regardless of the new rules, and also thinking about morale and um, complying with the law in connection with both safety and morale. And so in some circumstances, business owners have thought that masks would still be the appropriate direction to go. And in other situations, they've determined that they can comply with the guidelines without requiring masks for the individuals who who the rules allow that for. Does the responsibility then fall on employees to speak up and ask everyone to wear masks if a particular employee is not vaccinated? That obligation should really fall on the employer to know who is vaccinated or who hasn't provided information regarding vaccination as they're required under the new proposed revisions to document vaccination status. And if they don't have vaccination status documented for certain employees, they should follow up and make sure that the ones who are not documented as vaccinated are following the unvaccinated employer requirements, or if they have another exception that they're following that. Is there a possibility of legal actions in the future where maybe employees are suing over being required to come to work or customers if a business isn't requiring masks? Well, certainly in the employment arena, the employer always needs to be aware of potential accommodations that individuals might need that prevent them from coming to work or prevent them from following the guidelines. And in that case, the best way to avoid potential lawsuits is to engage in the interactive process and provide a reasonable accommodation to the employee, unless doing so would create an undue hardship. 
Um, the employer will also want to make sure to keep any medical information confidential and ensure that the employee is not subjected to what they would consider to be retaliation because the employee is unable to wear a mask. What about businesses that are saying only vaccinated people can come to the office? Is that a form of discrimination? Again, you would want to really analyze the particular circumstances. And in that case, has the employer taken into account medical and potentially religious concerns? Have they engaged in the interactive process? Another consideration might be, is working from home a reasonable accommodation? Or is it something that the employee may see as as not the same as coming to work? And so there are a variety of factors that each employer needs to consider when um, they make rules regarding mandatory vaccinations in the office. For some of the people I spoke with for my story, they don't consider themselves disabled. They've never even had to talk about their medical conditions in the past because it wasn't a big issue in their lives. But now they're needing to disclose their medical histories to coworkers or bosses or future employers. So is this a change to how we talk about our health in the future? I'm hoping that things continue in the way they have been in that employees are not necessarily required to provide a diagnosis from a doctor, but rather the restriction. So in this case, if an employee needs an exception to masking policies, for example, that they would have a doctor's note stating that rather than describing their entire medical history. And that may not even be required if it's a if it's a workplace um, in the vaccine context that is not requiring vaccines for everyone. So for example, if an employee Um, is not able to be vaccinated for medical reason, but the employer doesn't need to know why somebody is unvaccinated, then the issue will not come up. And it shouldn't be an issue among coworkers. It's really a communication between the employer and the employee and something that the employer will keep confidential. Well, I've been speaking with Sandy McDonough, who specializes in employment law at Paul Plevin, Sullivan, and Connaughton. Sandy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. The San Diego City Council yesterday voted unanimously to pass Mayor Todd Gloria's $4.6 billion budget for the next fiscal year. The final amount is roughly a 13% increase over last year's spending plan, thanks in part to federal COVID relief funds. Mayor Gloria identified affordable housing, homelessness, and pandemic recovery as the key issues he hopes to tackle with this new budget. But the city council meeting to approve the budget hit a snag. Council members disagreed about a proposed amendment to slash police funding. Joining me with more is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Claire. Thank you. So to start, what were some of the major funding initiatives that were approved in yesterday's meeting? As far as new programs that were proposed by Mayor Todd Gloria that didn't exist last year, there is $10 million for what he calls his Sexy Streets Initiative. This is new funding for road repair 
and redesign with more um, safety uh, measures in disadvantaged communities. There's another 10 million in nonprofit and small business loans, another 10 million for homeless outreach. And then every year, there's always a small pot of money that the city council earmarks from the dais. So uh, among those things, there's more funding for code enforcement officers. There's funding for a feasibility study of forming a public electrical utility. This is coming off the tails, of course, of the vote to approve another long-term agreement with SDG&E. And uh, there's also money for uh, the design of two new libraries or redesigned libraries and a new park in Barrio Logan. How much did San Diego rely on federal aid to keep the budget balanced? San Diego got more than $300 million from the American Rescue Plan. That's the COVID relief bill that was proposed by President Biden and ultimately approved by Congress on a party line vote. And that money was actually meant to replace lost revenue from the pandemic, recognizing that many cities and states are seeing lower tax uh, revenue in sales tax and hotel tax, things like that. So the city is pretty flexible on how this money is spent uh, in stark contrast to the CARES Act, which passed in 2020, uh, a lot of that money um, had to be spent on a city's uh, direct pandemic response. So the city is using about half of this total funding, uh, about $150 million from the American Rescue Plan, um, just basically filling the, the deficit that it was going to experience because of lost revenue. And they're saving the other half for the next two fiscal years. Uh, and that's strategic because the impacts of COVID-19 on tourism, on a large conventions, which are an important part of the San Diego economy, are likely to last uh, several more years beyond when the pandemic is officially over, uh, medically speaking. And I remember last year's budget meeting was pretty contentious. It ended around midnight after hundreds of people called in to support cutting the police budget. So what was this year's meeting like? Well, it was much tamer and more orderly, I can say that, um, and shorter. It wrapped up in the early afternoon. Um, the budget vote last year happened only three weeks after the murder of George Floyd. So this was really at the peak of the protest movement for racial justice and against police brutality. And last year, as you say, caller after caller after caller um, called into the meeting and said defund the police department, put that money towards parks, libraries, mental health services, affordable housing, public transit, other things that um, that are, you know, make a community rich and more healthy. Uh, the phone system last year at the time couldn't even handle the call volume. So the system kept on crashing. And that was one reason why the meeting lasted so long. This year, the technical glitches were sorted. There was no real uh, snafus there. Um, and uh, however, the movement to shift funding from police uh, to other public safety priorities and um, community health priorities is still around, and there were still plenty of people calling in to support that idea. There were also uh, pro-police um, callers who have gotten more organized, several people calling in saying, don't cut the police budget. And I think that's, you know, just a reflection of, of where our society is. There's still a substantial portion of San Diegans who uh, see nothing really seriously wrong with the status quo with regards to police. Now, I know there was uh, an interesting moment where Council Member Monica Montgomery Stepp put forward a last minute effort to reallocate six million dollars from the police overtime budget. So what happened to her proposal? 
Councilmember Montgomery Stepp has been talking a lot lately about reimagining public safety. And this is basically just understanding that crime is often a response to economic hardship and disenfranchisement or social exclusion. It's not always, uh, you know, crime is not a result necessarily of simply not having enough police around or not enough police presence in a community. And what I think that she was trying to do with this proposal to cut $6 million from the police overtime budget and I'll explain, you know, where she would reallocate that. She was just trying to force the council to debate the budget and the police budget in particular on those terms about reimagining public safety. So she had a breakdown where she'd like to reinvest those $6 million, um, youth diversion programming, more homelessness outreach funding, graffiti and weed abatement, new streetlights, all things related to public safety and quality of life. It was unlikely to win a majority, I'll say, um, but Councilmember Montgomery Stepp tried to use this parliamentary procedure to force a debate and a vote on her proposal. Um, That was not allowed by the council president, Jen Campbell, who runs the meeting. Uh, the council member uh, then tried to make it as an amendment to the motion that was already on the floor, but that wasn't accepted either. So ultimately, it just never got a vote or a real discussion. Exciting times at the city council meeting. I know there were also um, lingering concerns over cuts Mayor Gloria initially proposed to services in underserved neighborhoods. And what happened to those cuts in yesterday's meeting? Well, thinking back just two months ago, Mayor Todd Gloria's original proposed budget would have slashed library funding. Libraries would have been closed on Sundays and Mondays. More than 150 employees uh, would have been laid off. And he said at the time, this is what's necessary to end our chronic budget deficits that San Diego saw even when the economy was growing. Uh, But there was a big outcry from underserved communities, you know, saying basically a family in Logan Heights or in Canto relies much more on a public library than a a family in La Jolla or Point Loma. So for a mayor who talks so much about equity, that proposal just didn't sit well. Um, Ultimately, the mayor just uh, reversed course and and funded libraries uh, open seven days a week. And that was a big win for equity proponents. This was Mayor Todd Gloria's first budget since his election last November. What does it mean for him that this budget was approved unanimously? Almost immediately after the vote, Todd Gloria's office sent out a a press release, basically him taking a victory lap, saying he got unanimous approval. And uh, it was going to be a tough budget year. You know, uh, we weren't sure about federal aid coming through. Um, We were definitely not sure about uh, disagreements over the police budget. But ultimately, uh, he forged a, a wide coalition and got all nine votes to say yes to his budget. Well, I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Claire. Critical race theory has been at the center of a recent culture war surrounding what children are taught in school about race, history, and the contemporary impacts on institutions in this country. It's the parts of history often omitted from history books, yet pivotal to ending systemic racism. San Diego Union-Tribune columnist Charles Clark explores the issues in a recent column. Charles, welcome. Thanks for having me. For those who don't know, what is critical race theory? Of late, it's become a big buzzword, um, but its roots actually go back several decades uh, to the 1970s and 80s, where it was really an academic concept that kind of grew out of a framework for legal analysis. Um, And at its core, kind of what the theory's purpose was, is to examine how racism um, has shaped the U.S. legal system and public policy. 
um, and how that's affected many aspects of American life and American institutions, not just historically, um, but well into the modern day. I mean, you know, from Missouri to Montana, there's legislation being written to ban um, CRT from schools. And 15 states have, as you mentioned in your piece, have introduced bills to restrict how racism, sexism and other societal issues are discussed in the classroom. So first, who's opposing this education? By and large, it's conservatives, um, in particularly, I, I think, a bit, you know, a certain brand of conservatism, um, you know, the Freedom Caucus, folks like that. Uh, they really have pushed this, um, as has uh, former President Donald Trump, who actually signed an executive order related to the issue. So then why is there so much resistance to teaching students critical race theory from, from these people? Well, their contention is that it is divisive um, and it will make kids hate each other. Uh, and, you know, really it kind of gets to kind of this whole culture wars thing. And, you know, I think some of them, like the Heritage Foundation, you know, these groups that don't want to acknowledge that systemic racism is a thing, um, you know, part of CRT is you kind of just explicitly are acknowledging that that is a very real thing. Um, so they really don't want to get into that very much. It seems to be at least as I understand it, when I see from parents and some of the emails I got that were rather angry about me writing about it, uh, it was very much this attitude about we don't want white kids to feel guilty. Um, and maybe that's a blunt way to put it, but that's more or less what they're getting at is we don't want white kids to be feel like they're guilty or that they did something um, inherently just because they're white. Um, and in some cases, they kind of the natural progression of that is the people who Opposed CRT, at least this very vocal group, they kind of contend that it is inherently racist against white people. But where does that idea come from and how is the understanding of this curriculum so vastly different among people? You know, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure kind of how they got to A to B uh, to C there, if if I'm being quite honest. Um, Because I think as I kind of noted in, in my piece, I think Generally speaking, I would hope that most people are intelligent enough to distinguish that no, simply being white doesn't mean you're racist. Um, You know, the the calculus seems to be that it is a very, you know, opportunistic political tool uh, to get people out to vote. Yeah, and I was going to ask, you know, do you sense that arguments against critical race theory are disingenuous? And if so, in what ways? The main reason I I view the arguments as disingenuous, generally speaking, um, is I think, you know, most of the time when I hear people making the arguments, they're applying it rather broadly to something that isn't exclusively CRT. Um, And more often than not, it turns into this conversation about, it's kind of like the patriotic education thing, right? We want history taught a certain way, or pretending that there isn't a real reason that something like CRT is needed. And that's where it kind of irks me because, you know, I think it's one thing to debate the specific merits of this kind of analytical framework. Um, And again, I I do think there's a fair critique in that it's a little too broad and nebulous, but there's another thing where you're kind of using it to try to snuff out any discussion of any kind of education program that requires kids to think critically about race and racism. You know, frankly, from a personal 
perspective, I think part of the reason that irks me so much is it wasn't that long ago that I was in school. And I think about the fact that things, you know, from the Tulsa race massacre to Emmett Till and all these different things that really weren't taught, you know, even Henrietta Lacks, right? Uh, Just there's a lot of parts of history that, you know, very intentionally have been excluded from classrooms and things because I think we wanted to perpetuate this idea of American righteousness and excellence when the reality is, you know, this is a country that like we struggle with systemic racism. It was a country founded on, you know, the genocide of one group of people and the enslavement of another. Another issue, I mean, do you think that part of the problem is that some people don't have a real understanding of what racism is? Yes, I do. Uh, And I think it's because there's a tendency with a certain segment of folks that they want to think of racism as someone burning a cross in your yard, right? Or, you know, openly calling you a slur, something that is a very, you know, clear, overt act of racism. When you recognize and acknowledge that racism isn't just an individual overt act, but a systemic thing where institutions and things have consistently punched down at people. Um, The flip side of that is on some level, you have to kind of acknowledge that you inherently had some advantages over other people. And I don't think it's necessarily an American thing, but I think most of us want to believe that we've earned everything we've got. And, you know, we, we like to entertain, right. That we went through this adversity and that we, we got everything on our own merits. And I think, you know, when you have to acknowledge that systemic racism is a real thing, you kind of have to acknowledge that, you know, you got an upper hand that a lot of other people weren't afforded. And I don't think that makes you a bad person, but I think a lot of people really struggle to accept that. I've been speaking to Charles Clark, columnist with the San Diego Union Tribune. Charles, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Claire Trageser. Maureen Cavanaugh has the day off. As restrictions are lifted and the region takes a giant step towards normalcy, we're going to take a closer look at the performing arts industry in San Diego. For the last year and a half almost, opportunities to reopen or recreate the audience experience online have been limited. Many performers have been out of work. But joining me is KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans to take a look at the transition back to in-person events, new challenges as venues start welcoming audiences back, and whether or not you'll be seeing masks on the people sitting next to you. Welcome, Julia. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. So, Julia, what's your sense of how these places are feeling now that shows are coming back? The excitement and relief must be palpable. It really is. But... For a lot of the groups I've been speaking with, it's not entirely a relief, not just financially, but there's a lot of healing and trauma a lot of artists are going to have to contend with. Here's Barry Edelstein from The Old Globe. 
something like 600,000 Americans died of this pandemic. Um, there was tremendous economic hardship around the country and the state and here in San Diego and indeed in the community of people who work for the Old Globe and in the artistic community of the American theater in particular. So the joy is not unalloyed. And theaters and dance companies are also contending with trying to reflect on their stage where they are in terms of social and racial justice too. Here's Christopher Ashley, who is artistic director at the La Jolla Playhouse, who, who spoke to this. The anti-racist commitments that we've made as a theater really very much play into um, how we all come back together, uh, the kinds of stories we tell, and how we uh, make sure that um, BIPOC artists and audience members feel fully taken care of, um, listened to, supported. In live music venues like Soda Bar, Casbah, or the Observatory, the reality of these venues is standing room only, general admission ticketing. A sellout crowd can mean shoulder to shoulder with strangers. What will the reality be post-social distancing there? Yeah, I mean, much earlier in the pandemic, there were ideas tossed around about adding chairs to these floors, but that's just not feasible. Corey Steer, who is partner and talent buyer at Soda Bar, said that they can only do full capacity. I asked him a little bit more about this. We're not able to operate, you know, in any other way, really. That's why we haven't reopened. Like, we've waited, you know, until this time to reopen because, you know, financially, it just wouldn't make sense for us. We'd be better off closed. And they're also still working out all sorts of other details, like whether they'll have smartphone ordering capabilities for the bar or how they'll use bar stools. And they still have another month to go before their first scheduled show at Soda Bar. So there's some time. Across the board, we're looking at a lot of uncertainty and confusion from our audiences uh, about whether places will require proof of vaccines or whether audiences will be required to wear masks. What do we know so far from the venues? Yeah, a lot of these venues are still really up in the air in terms of capacity, in terms of masks. And the Old Globe, they don't have actual seats for sale yet. You can still, you can already get season tickets for the season that they've announced to start in August. La Jolla Playhouse also has to follow the lead of the UC system. They're on the campus of UC San Diego. And they said that they have budgeted in a way that means they can socially distance in audiences if that is still required. And they said that they're not releasing a seating chart yet until they have a better sense of what their audiences are willing to do and what the restrictions are. One place that was pretty clear on, on masks and social distancing was San Diego theaters. They're the commercial group that operates the Civic Theater and the Balboa Theater. So their clients are places like Broadway San Diego, the San Diego Opera, and they also book individual touring musicians. I spoke to the president and CEO of San Diego Theaters. That's Carol Wallace. Here she is. On all of my industry calls, and we've talked about, uh, are you doing any kind of mask mandate? Uh, and we're not. Um, you know, are you requiring vaccinations? And we're not. Um, so we're open at full capacity. And what kind of shows are we seeing scheduled? Are places struggling to have material or performances to actually put on the stages? Yeah, so for live music, the early bookings we're seeing are pretty local. 
but as we get later in the summer, we will see touring acts that are starting to travel around the country. So at Soda Bar, they're kicking things off on July 16th with locals Mrs. Magician. And the following week, they'll have Danny Bell and the Tarantist. And in the theater, I had asked La Jolla Playhouse's Christopher Ashley if they're going to see a slow start while all of these productions can be put together to bring to the stage. You know, we had a, a season announced um, that we had to hold on. So we've got many plays that we were sort of already ready to go with. And, and in addition, I mean, every artist I know has written three new plays. And La Jolla Playhouse is also kicking off the season with three world premieres. They have The Garden in late September. November is a play called The Yellow House, which is a, a Van Gogh story, and a musical, Banging It, which will be in March. But before they do full productions, they're going to have their DNA New Work series of play readings. That's next month. And they also have a free outdoor pop-up show, their pop-up wow of short plays. That's going to be August at the Outdoor Stage in Liberty Station. And San Diego Theaters, they said that it will be a while, maybe after the new year before they're operating a full volume of shows. They're going to start with just two in August. They have blues rock guitarist Joe Bonamassa. There's crossover violin electronic artist and YouTuber Lindsey Sterling. And then several more in the fall. There's going to be some stand-up comedians. And then Broadway will start with Hairspray in mid-November. And they'll also have a Nutcracker in December. And at the Old Globe, they're starting this weekend with outdoor cabaret-style performances on their festival stage. And we're also going to see a production of Hair in August on the outdoor stage also. Their first indoor shows will be Globe-commissioned world premiere musical, The Gardens of Annuncia. That's in September. And Shutter Sisters will be a world premiere also in October. And as we've heard, there's a hunger in arts communities to get back to live audiences and experience performances the way we used to. But do you have a sense of whether that anticipation is actually turning into ticket sales? It really is, at least for now, as this first wave of tickets are going on sale. And here's Carol Wallace again with San Diego Theaters. And we can only open at full capacity. So all the events that we have scheduled are at full capacity. And ticket sales are brisk. Uh, you just would not believe You'll, a show will go on sale and immediately uh, you see hundreds of tickets sold within a few hours. And uh, so much so that some of our clients are adding second shows immediately. I've been speaking with KPBS Arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans, who recently checked in with Barry Edelstein at the Old Globe, Corey Steer at Soda Bar, Carol Wallace at San Diego Theaters, and Christopher Ashley at the La Jolla Playhouse. Thanks, Julia. Thanks for having me, Jade. We also wanted to know how San Diegans are feeling about returning to in-person events. Now that San Diego is back open, will you go to concerts, plays, and other arts events with live audiences? And we heard from lots of you. Here's a selection. My uh, name is Richard Chow Davis, and I live in San Carlos. I'm unsure. Uh, I suspect we will be closed down within a month because of... Uh, pools of unvaccinated and variants. Most other nations seem to have done the same. I mean, they open too early and uh, then they just have to close again. So I'm afraid we're jumping the gun. 
My name is Forrest Taylor, and I live in Camp Pendleton. I am about to go event crazy. I feel great about the vaccine, and honestly, not that concerned about people who've refused to get it yet. They made their call. Not going to spit on anyone, but you better believe I'm going to be dancing with strangers. I just purchased Broadway tickets today. So my name is Elena Bartakova, and in terms of arts and events that are opening up now in San Diego, where I live, um, the question being, would I participate to any? Um, my answer is, I mean, I would, but very cautiously. I want, I would like to go to events such as concerts and plays. I love theater and music, but going into a closed space, especially with children that are not vaccinated yet and that are cannot be vaccinated due to the age, I wouldn't do it. If anything, I'd be more cautious than less because now we have no way of knowing who's vaccinated and people will start removing their masks. And until we reach herd immunity, which is that magical 70 plus percent vaccinated number, my children are now in more danger than they were before since now everybody will be unmasked and the transmission could actually go up. So I will be very cautious. I'll take them to the park, to a play outside, but we are not going to the cinema yet. Hi, my name is Dylan Cawthorn. Um, I'm, I'm definitely really excited to return to live music and show my support for bands that are coming through and local venues like the Casbah, Soda Bar, and Brick by Brick. Um, I definitely will feel more comfortable at venues that have a mask policy, but I, I don't really anticipate canceling plans because of a, a certain venue's policies at this point. I'm Eve Gross. My pronouns are she and her, and I live in San Diego, California. I'd be happy to go to any live performances if they're outdoors or in a large, well-ventilated space. If indoors, capacity would have to be limited quite a bit for me to feel comfortable. Uh, my concern is that the vaccine isn't protecting us against other variants, or when our vaccine actually wears off, if we go back to the way things were with full capacity, we could have a really bad spike of the virus again, and I don't want to get caught up in that. Also, as a musician in a band, I'm a singer, so I would only want to play outdoor shows. Uh, that's the only thing that would make me feel comfortable. My name's Anthony King. I live in Hillcrest. I'm eager to be in person to support the artistic community in our region again. I know there are certainly many benefits to virtual or recorded events, but for me, really nothing can be cheering on the musicians and actors and writers and artists while um, being in the audience. I'm probably going to be a little bit nervous in larger groups, especially indoors, um, but really uh, I trust the vaccines and I know that that's what they're for. And when I'm feeling super stressed, I can always put on a mask, but I know that a mask won't be able to hide my excitement. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I.